Welcome to our podcast, Leading Past Limits. We share lessons learned from the hard-won experience of mission-driven leaders so that you expand your horizons as a leader that places service before self. I'm Kumar Kibble, a leadership coach and the principal at GuideQuest. I've been passionate about developing leaders since graduating from West Point more than 30 years ago and have led high-performing teams as a military officer, special agent, diplomat, government, and corporate executive. Now I partner with leaders and teams as a coach to help unlock their potential and maximize their impact. In this first season, join me in learning from entrepreneurs, CEOs, Army generals, police chiefs, war heroes, thought leaders, and more. Be sure to subscribe and don't miss out on lessons learned from the real world School of Hard Knocks. Our guest today is Chief Dan Oates. He served as the former police chief of three different police departments in Miami Beach, Florida, Aurora, Colorado, and Ann Arbor, Michigan. These assignments followed an illustrious 21-year career in the New York Police Department, culminating as the head of intelligence for the NYPD. He is a charter member of the Federal Criminal Intelligence Coordinating Council. While with the Aurora Police Department, he was responsible for the criminal investigation of one of the largest mass shootings in American history in 2012. Dan, welcome to the show. Kumar, it's nice to see you. So you began professional life as a journalist. What led you into the law enforcement profession? Well, it's it's funny you should ask. I kind of came of age, uh, you know, in the college years, we're in the 70s. And of course, it was the Watergate era. And I was uh, incredibly inspired by the work of journalists during that period. And I had it in my mind that I was going to be a newspaper reporter for a career. And I worked for, oh, did a ton of internships uh, throughout college and was offered a job in 1977. When I graduated, I went to work for the Atlantic City Press. Um, but as as happens, you know, I fell in love and, and uh, <clears throat> married a wonderful woman. But in order to make that marriage succeed, I had to leave South Jersey and go to New York City because that's where she was working. And we both concluded that. I was more likely to find employment there than she was to find employment in publishing in South Jersey. So, um, so the job I got in New York was working for popular mechanics magazine, believe it or not, mm -hmm. as an editor. And, uh, it was interesting, but not particularly fulfilling. And I was in that job for about two years, uh, casting about for something different to do, thinking going to law school, believe it or not. And, uh, the NYPD announced that they were hiring. For the first time in five years because of the fiscal crisis of the mid 70s and uh, in 1980 i joined the nypd right at the beginning of a huge hiring boom uh, and i did it kind of on a whim just to try something different the idea really started to grow on me while i was going through the application process and uh living in manhattan it was an exciting time young married no kids uh and uh i, I took the plunge and uh you know, change changed my life all for the better. I've had a wonderful, marvelous law enforcement career, all because of that experience in the NYPD and that start. So, and and you, uh, I mean, you have you've you've touched a number of different bases and a number of different areas, face taking on different challenges uh, along the way. What what challenges did you face at the beginning of your career, beginning in law enforcement? Um, well, the NYPD was going through significant change. It hadn't hired any new cops in five years. Uh, when I joined the department, it was largely white, largely male, um, uh, a lot of Vietnam veteran folks, and a lot of people who had been through the layoffs of the, of the 70s. 
you know, in 1975, uh, the NY, or 1973 or so, the NYPD laid off five or 6,000 cops. And they eventually, those who wanted back, eventually were hired back uh, through, through the 70s. But it was a very embittered workforce that I joined. And we were these young folks coming on board, many of us college educated, um, a very, very diverse uh, group of the first significant uh, influx of minority men and women, the very first significant influx of women into the NYPD in the sworn ranks. And a lot of that was a function of federal uh, court orders as a result of challenges to the hiring process and um, uh, sort of sort of proven discrimination in the hiring process in the past. And so we were a radically different, you know, post-Vietnam, most of us hadn't served, hadn't been in the military, and uh, generally higher levels of education. And it was an upheaval uh, within the NYPD. And between 1980 and 1986, something like 14, 15,000 of us were hired. Wow. So it was a, a total radical change to how the NYPD operated or, 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 or the talent and the diversity of talent that joined the organization. And I got hired right at the beginning of that uh, hiring boom. And so what happened was I get hired in 1980, 1983, they need sergeants. I take the sergeant's exam and boom, 1984, I'm a sergeant. 1987, I'm a lieutenant. 1992, I'm a captain. So I zipped through and there were about 90 of us who hit the tests just right and went from police officer to executive, you know, the lowest ranking, lowest rank in the executive corps in the NYPD as captain, uh, that there were about 90 or 100 of us who went through the ranks like that um, in about 10 to 12 years. And really interesting, Kumar, 1980s, New York City crime was out of control. Mm-hmm. And remember the crack boom starts right. in 1984. And it's it's just crazy how uh, dangerous and violent and crime-ridden New York City was. But there's no more fun than to be a street cop yeah. when crime is like that. Right. But I was a street cop in the 80s, and it was a blast. Yeah. Um, I also uh, was very fortunate. I won a scholarship because I was a cop, and I went to law school in the 80s. Um, 82 to 86, I went at night and I, I uh, managed somehow uh, to get a law degree and that really propelled my career. And then in 1992, <clears throat> I become a captain and Bill Bratton comes in in January of 1994 with Rudy Giuliani as the new mayor. Bill Bratton is the new police commissioner. And as you know, in policing, Bill in New York City changed the world. Uh, uh, data-driven decision-making, strategic deployment around crime. Uh, Comstat, all of those initiatives. So the second half of my NYPD career, I was an executive moving through the more senior ranks during the most exciting time in the NYPD's history where we were successfully driving down crime Um, and learned a lot from Bill, who's a remarkable leader. And to this day, we're friends and I still do some work with him and and seek his counsel regularly. Um, So I just had a great time. Street cop in the 80s when crime was out of control, and that was a blast. And an executive in the 90s when we it was palpable the way we were changing the city and making it safer. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've just been very, very blessed. And from there, uh, Bill in particular, but in general, my colleagues in the NYPD inspired mm-hmm. me to try and be a, an executive myself and run an agency. And I took the plunge and left uh, right before 9-11. I left the NYPD. 
and arrived in Ann Arbor, Michigan, right before 9-11 to become a police chief. And then, then the, three, the three jobs over 18 years as a police chief, three different cities, three iconic cities, great experience. So, Dan, before we explore that further, yeah. tell me, you know, there must have been the accelerated movement through the ranks, right. all the things going on, the challenges, the public safety challenges in the city at the time, the transition of integrating uh, 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 workforce with higher education from a more diverse background. There must have been challenges and setbacks encountered along the way. I mean, w- would you describe some of them and, and, uh, and what you learned from them? Well, in the NYPD, they have a very interesting approach to executive positions in the rank of captain and above. Um, if they think you're right for a job, uh, there's not much discussion, kind of like the military, not much discussion about whether or not you think you're right for the job or you're fit for the job. Uh, here you go. And on day one, you're expected to run the organization. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Um, I'm the brand new head of the NYPD Intelligence Division, Okay. Um, I was very junior ranked when I got the job. Uh, Howard Safer, the police commissioner at the time, took a took a leap of faith with me when he gave me the organization to run and asked me to make some major change. And it is literally my first day in the office. Okay, mm-hmm. and two letter bombs show up at the United Nations. Now, one of your jobs as the head of intelligence for the NYPD is you are the point of contact and lead liaison for the NYPD to the entire diplomatic community. Mm-hmm. And as far as the police commissioner and the senior command staff is, you're supposed to have all the answers when there's a diplomatic event immediately. Mm-hmm. So I am literally in the office. I got there super early, five in the morning. I'm unpacking, I'm putting all my stuff in place and I'm trying to get to know people. And I get the phone call, hey boss, got two letter bombs at the UN, let's go. So we're racing from you know lower Brooklyn uh, uh, up to the United Nations, and I have no idea what I'm supposed to do when I get there. Um, but that's the kind of you know thing you, you events you are thrown into in the NYPD. Um, there was a moment in my career where I know for a fact that the police commissioner, earlier moment in my career, as a young captain, when the police commissioner was thinking of me for to head the mounted unit. I only found out about it afterwards. Okay, I don't know a damn thing about <laughs> other than that I'm terrified of them because I had experience as a as a adolescent riding a horse that got out of control, you know, on some trip out west or something. So, but that's the way it is. If they decide you're right for a job, then you find your way through it. Um, but in a way, excellent training for how to be an executive, how to cope mm-hmm. with uh, that which you do not know. Um, and of course, one of the life lessons for me in all those experiences, including the three departments I ran in, and something I always preach to this day to young sergeants when they become sergeants, is don't think because you're a boss and you have the authority that uh, you have to make all the decisions. The mm-hmm. talent around you can guide you through just about any crisis. If you turn around and ask people, What's what? What advice do you have about how to handle this crisis right now, or this problem, or this issue? Um, you'll find that the the people in in the lower ranks, the people who do the work every day, will guide you. And not only that, they'll appreciate a that you asked, and b right. that as a result of asking, you're taking the team in the right direction. Um, yeah. uh, sort of never more true than I got when I got promoted to sergeant. Uh, in 1984, and they sent me to the vis- busiest, most violent precinct in New York City, 3-4 in northern Manhattan. 
and and I was working late tours because I was going to law school, so I had to have steady shifts, and that was the only shift that was available was a midnight shift. And everyone who worked for me, the thirty or the thirty or five or so cops who turned out every night, everyone who worked for me had a minimum of ten or twelve years on the job, and I was a brand new sergeant with four years on the job. And I learned very quickly, these guys knew a lot more about policing than I did. And all they wanted out of a boss was someone to make smart decisions based on good information and listen to their advice. And I learned really, really quickly that talking to them about how to handle this shooting or this multiple car accident or any of these things and the steps that had to be taken. Um, and it's a life lesson that I applied in, in all my jobs going forward. I mean, as a new chief, you come into a new city, you don't know the city. You don't know any of the dynamics um, and and the power influences in that city, and and you got to rely on the people around you, and that's a really really important leadership lesson uh, that I learned, you know, from my time in the NYPD. Yeah, you know what you say resonates because I, I remember when I reported as a as a new lieutenant in the 82nd Airborne Division and took over this platoon of paratroopers that had jumped into Panama and had been in Desert Storm. Yeah. Uh, I gathered the NCOs who had, you know, obviously I'm, I'm a butter bar. I've got no experience. And I said, look, your job is to teach me to be the leader you deserve. <laughs> that's, that's a great line. Yeah. And uh, I, yeah. without without using that language, that's kind yeah. of the philosophy I took. And I'll tell you this, when I every single person who got promoted to sergeant in each of the three agencies I ran for 18 years, I had a sit down private conversation with them. I tried to do it over a breakfast or a lunch and just just spent the hour sort of talking about those kinds of experiences that I had uh, as a young sergeant, young lieutenant, uh, and trying to share with them and, and tell them that my two important messages were, one is rely on the people around you. They know the business if you just ask and be patient. And the other thing in policing is don't rush. There's very, very few moments in policing when you have to make an instant decision as a leader. Mm -hmm. One of the important skills is to know when to slow down everybody and everything. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, unless there's hostages behind a door and shots are being fired, you know, there's almost no circumstance where you've got to rush in. Uh, and the best way to keep your people safe, um, uh, you know, is to, is to take your time, be deliberative, uh, and take in a lot of input and ask for a lot of advice and help. Let me ask you, when you, you, you earlier um, referenced you know, coming into a new city and there's all these things going on that you're not familiar with. Uh, I know that, you know, major city police chiefs face, you know, this broad range of stakeholders that have an interest in how policing is impacting the community and so on. I, there's just pressures, it strikes me, pressures from every side, every angle. Do you have any strategies or any things you lean into to, to stay resilient, you know, and to, uh, yeah, well, just to just to weather weather the pressures. Well, you know, it's interesting. Interesting, you use the word resilient. I think the 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 shelf life of a police chief is about five years. There is a point at which um, the agency needs a change, and you need a change. There's there are there are there are only so many times you can try and achieve something. And, you know, if it's, if something still needs to be changed in the organization or, or how the department relates to the city and the community, and you've tried three times and you failed, it's that's, and you begin to feel that as a police chief, uh, there's a point in which, yeah, it's time to move on. I, I need a new set of problems, a new set of folks to deal with. And this organization does too. And it's, it, I've probably accomplished about all I can here. Um, you don't get hired as a police chief 
by another agency unless mm-hmm. the agency has problems. It, it takes a lot for a city to say, we're not going to hire from within. Uh, and, and, you know, typically when you come in, you're brought in because the, the, um, it's perceived by the decision makers, the elected decision makers in the city, that the talent isn't there to move the organization forward in a certain way and we have to go outside. The other thing that happens when you come in as an outsider to a police organization is there's a lot of resistance to the outsider. Everyone wishes it was an insider. You know, um, uh, the, yeah, the joke in the profession among leadership is that <clears throat> the only thing that cops hate more than the status quo is change. And uh, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I find that to be very true. And in each of the cities that I went into, there was a clear mandate. Uh, you're being brought in here, Oates, to make changes. Uh, yeah. Typical, and typically they were around accountability. They were around leadership. They were around relating to the community and being more mm-hmm. responsive and more to and respectful of the community. Uh, more responsive to and more respectful of <clears throat> the elected leadership. Uh, and and those are challenges when you come in as an outsider because pretty much the general rule of thumb is the cops would have preferred someone from the inside. So it's a tough, tough circumstance to come into. Um, and yeah, you need to be resilient. Um, and, you know, in terms of strategy, the best, the best advice I would have for someone who would do that today is you've got to put in the time. It's 12 hour days. It's, it's meeting with everyone. It's, it's doing the listening tour for the first three months where you try and reassure everyone you're dealing with, whether it's the community the, and particularly the cops, everyone, listen, I'm not going to make any radical changes. I, I have to learn about you and, and the organization and, and the needs of the community. And so give me time and be reassured that I'm not going to do anything wild and crazy and stupid by way of major change uh, without knowing um, uh the organization and the challenges it faces in the community. Um, so that's been my lesson. And each time I did it as an outsider, cause I came in three times, I think each time I got a little better at it. And in the process, I found that as hard as and challenging that was, that was the most fun, you know, coming mm-hmm. in as an outsider because an organization needs reform, needs change. And everyone sort of acknowledges that even the cops acknowledge it. Um, uh, it's a lot of fun to, find your way, meet new folks, spend the time listening, learning about the sort of the culture of the community, um, and then beginning to fashion, uh, you know, remedies, uh, right. solutions, uh, collaborate. So, so let me ask you, so the, I, I think that you are uniquely positioned um, in terms of having assumed command of so, you know, several different police departments. You talk about the importance of the listening tour and kind of, um, acknowledging and being prepared to overcome resistance, internal resistance. What are other things that you do as far as like, you know, once you've gathered the information, kind of how do you set a vision? How do you chart a new course? How do you, uh, how do you, what specifically do you do to get buy-in for a new policy direction or whatever the change may be? Well, first of all, you know, for your, for your audience, policing is kind of a unique culture. Um, uh, you know, the stratified paramilitary way of doing things, the chief, the chief holds inordinate sway in a police department. My sense is much less, much more than say in a private corporation. Um, 
people hang on every word that you say as a police chief. And one of the lessons as a, as a newbie police chief is learning to keep your mouth shut sometimes. You know, you might say things that, you know, you and I would joke and say in a normal conversation um, and, and you would understand, uh, you know, my effort at humor. And, and some folks would take, you know, when you're brand new in, in an organization it's, and it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a North, Northeastern liberal kind of guy. I grew up in New York City and I arrive in, in the Midwest in a Big Ten college town. And there were some cultural differences in and way way I acted and the way I was interpreted, and and you learn over time to be to be more circumspect. Um, in terms of building sort of a vision for the organization, I've tried all the tricks, but today my approach would be if I were to take over another organization, um, I struggle with big. I start off by saying I struggle with big time five year strategic plans. Okay. My experience has been those things sit on shelves, mm -hmm. right? I tend to think in terms of what is the organization, what should it be trying to accomplish in the next three months and in the next year? Okay. And, and what I adopted as a, as, a, as a practical working strategy for my leadership team in Aurora, and I think I was even more effective in Miami Beach, is a planning day or maybe a planning days retreat every three months. And the conversation during those three months, the, those, those planning sessions would be, what's happened in the last three months? What's our reaction to it? Where are we with the initiatives we talked about three months ago in our last meeting? What do we plan to accomplish in the next three months? And where do we want to be a year from now? Mm -hmm. And, and then, being a police department, there are there are there are categories that are are terribly important to talk about whenever you get the team together: hiring and recruitment, effectiveness of investigations, basic patrol deployment, um, relationships with the community, and whether or not we're doing more and enough. We need to try some different initiatives. So the, the strategy I found that was most effective over time, after 18 years as a police chief, was that strategy. Um, I. I I've never quite gotten the big the notion of big time five year strategic plans. I and maybe I think it's something about me and the way I approach. I, I it's been my experience as well, and I think the thing is is that what we do is pretty complex, and there's so many variables. Yeah. The idea that you're going to have the foresight to anticipate all of that, I love what you outlined because it's very agile, and you can adapt as things that are unforeseen emerge. Um, where did you learn it? I mean, did you learn that at the NYPD? Did you develop that over time I, I, yourself? I think hard knocks over 18 years as a police chief coming in three times to outside agencies. I will tell you this. Another thing I, I share with folks who are competing for police chief's jobs. If you want to, typically police chiefs are hired by city managers. Typical, you know, 80 percent of cities in America, there's an elected board, which is your mayor and city council. But there's a professional CEO who runs the city, typically a city manager. Maybe 20% of the time, the CEO is the elected mayor. Like in New York City, the CEO is the elected mayor. But many, many cities in this country, Miami, Dallas, the mayor doesn't run the city. You know, the city's run by a city manager. And each of the three cities I worked in, I worked for a city manager. And I used to, to joke, but not, you know, somewhat serious with candidates. I said, if you get to the interview stage with the city manager, if you want to impress the hell out of him, you know what it means to be a police chief, tell him you won't take the job until you meet with 
the budget director and talk about the resources that are going to be available to you, the city attorney, and talk about the legal support you're going to get to run the police department and the director of human resources for the city. Because mm-hmm. you're going to spend 70% of your time as a police chief dealing with budget, HR, and legal. And if you want to impress the hell out of a city manager and you're a candidate for a job, just go in and say, these things are really important to me and I won't have a comfort level taking the job, Mr. Manager, unless we get to that point where um, you know I can get a sense of, of how the police chief interacts with those entities and what kind of support there will be, because I know that that stuff is crucial to running an organization. And of course, none of those three things, except maybe only indirectly, actually are about deploying cops on the street, responding right. to calls for service, et cetera. But that's the stuff of managing a police department these days. And if you think about it, especially today, uh, in light of where we are and where policing is in America, um, and, and that's just something I learned over time. Um, you know, that's that's where that's where you uh, I'll use the term win important battles that influence the organization in the direction it goes. Can you can you win the fights over who you hire and who you terminate? Can you win some of the legal battles when, you know, the department is sued because of X or Y or there's some new direction you want to go in that has legal implications? And can you win frankly, the advocacy and the fight for resources every year, because every year you go through a very challenging budget cycle that typically takes months, involves lots of public hearings before the elected officials. And, you know, there's a great debate going on in American society today about how much resources should go to the police. And that's what democracy is about. And if you're going to be an advocate for your agency, you've got to stand up in the public forum and say, it's really important that we spend this amount of money on training or that we purchase this important protective gear for our cops or whatever. Um, um, Or if you want us to wear body cameras, understand that the true cost of body cameras for an agency is a lot more than buying a camera. It's, it's storage, you know, it's, it's personnel to uh, go through requests for public records. I mean, those are the kinds of things you do as a police chief and they consume a lot of your time. When, when you were, you know, whether it's either of those, any of those departments, did you ever see something that you thought was critical to the future of the department that you had to build support for that maybe it wasn't so obvious um, to people within the department or the city manager? Uh, did you ever run into anything I, like the that? The answer is yes, again and again and again. And I'll talk about one element, um, one experience that I am particularly proud of and a legacy in two agencies. Um, you know, but the answer is yes all the time. Um, I had uh, in all three departments challenges around uh, officers um, who were addicted to alcohol, okay, mm-hmm. uh, and whose lives were <clears throat> in the process of being ruined. And I had cops I had to fire because of uh, uh, actions they took and decisions they made while intoxicated. Um, and I had a moment out in the parking lot talking to. Uh, a veteran cop, a spectacular cop in Aurora, who was a recovering alcoholic, had been sober for 20 years. And I went to him for advice about uh, one of my cops who was in crisis because of decisions she had made and actions she had taken while intoxicated. And I was facing the typical, how do I rescue an employee at the same time as discipline her for her behavior? And um, uh, the cop's name was Tom Abbott. 
and 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 Tom said to me in the parking lot, you know, Chief, the problem with our alcohol program in Aurora is the problem everywhere. What will be offered to her, she's in crisis. And because she's in crisis and she's so deeply dependent on alcohol and she's having so many problems, she has no time on the books, okay? She has no money. She needs inpatient treatment for her alcohol abuse. And in typical fashion, our city is offering outpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. And she cannot succeed with outpatient treatment. She needs to go in. She can't use any sick time because she has none because this is a typical problem for folks, you know, in, in this kind of, you know, in extremis around their, their alcoholism. Um, you need to find a way if you really want to solve this problem. And this was probably, I had been there at that point, five, six years, and we had had four or five cops, you know, some of whom had lost their careers because of events. And, and, and Tom said, you got to find a way to cover her without regard to uh, medical cost, insurance programs, whether or not she has time on the books, whether or not she can afford it, you got to find a way to get her into inpatient treatment. And, and I did, um, I cut a few corners and maybe didn't tell my boss everything I was doing, but I found a way. But eventually I went to my boss and said, this, what Tom told me is so powerful. We need to set this up for as a regular funded program for the entire PD and better yet for the entire 2,400 people in the city workforce. And we did. I had a, hmm. I had a tremendously uh, receptive city manager. And the cost was, you know, in the end, if you build it right, relatively minor. And in a workforce of, of 2,400 uh, employees, I think by the time I left, we were averaging five or six city employees a year. Mm -hmm. you now you raise your hand and say, I've got a problem. And we moved you right into inpatient treatment and post inpatient treatment, you know, a 30 day program, post, post, you know, uh, treatment, uh, outpatient treatment. And, you know, we were rescuing lives for a relatively modest expense. Um, and I was able to duplicate duplicate that eventually I had to start from scratch when I got to Miami beach, but I got there in the same place in Miami beach. Um, so that's an example of identifying a need and, and working towards a solution that's compassionate and it's about protecting your employees. And, and one of the things I think I'm most proud of, uh, in my time, another was building, uh, a, top shelf peer support programs in both agencies mm -hmm. uh, with, yeah. the out, with the help of outside professionals and the full support of my bosses. So, yeah. What about when you've had um, something that's uh, concerns that are being kind of imposed from outside the organization that are not popular with the rank and file in police? What do you, yeah. Oh, come on. Actually yeah. that happens all the time. Right. And, right. And it, you know, it's part of the challenge. Now, really, really interesting. I think the best example in recent years was the introduction of body cameras, as you might imagine. Okay. Right. So um, um, I had the good fortune of when I arrived in Ann Arbor back in 01, that we had dash ca cameras in um, a, a handful of patrol cars. Okay. Um, it was the old... Uh, uh, VHS, you, you know, the machine was in the trunk of the car and you plugged the tapes in and we had mountains of storage of tapes and all of that. But by the time I got to Ann Arbor, what we found was, what I found was that the cops who were assigned to traffic enforcement, I had a handful, you know, typically one or two on every shift. Uh, the cops assigned to traffic enforcement, love the cameras. 
The rank and file cops didn't want anything to do with the dash cam cars. But the cops are the traffic enforcement and know what it was like to have false complaints made against them. Right. Okay. Right. You know, they had a microphone on them and they had the dash cam camera. Um, you know, and, and again and again, people would come in and complain to us about how they were treated by an officer. The cops all knew they were being videotaped and we'd pull out the videotape and the people would leave sheepishly, you know, after watching <laughs> yeah. the video and realizing the cop was professional. Um, so I learned early on that properly run cameras, cops will eventually embrace because they protect cops, right? Yeah. So I get to Ann Arbor, I get to Aurora and circa, I guess it would have been 2011, uh, we start to experiment with, with, with uh, body cameras, body worn cameras. And so what did I learn? Roll it out with the traffic cops. And I had a very mm -hmm. strong, vibrant uh, motorcycle unit. We had 160 miles, a lot of traffic dangers and um, cops, you know, stopping cars and writing tickets all the time because that's part of what we do in enforcement and control behavior. And, you know, not surprisingly, the motorcycle cops took to the body cameras fairly, qu fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we had we had an incident early on where uh, a cop was literally threatened by someone and it was captured on camera. And we ended up locking them up for threatening the cop. And of course, I marketed that to the entire department. <laughs> um, and just as I was leaving in 2014, we were starting to roll cameras out to patrol, still with a lot of resistance. But I already knew that I had built, you know, some advocacy. And I think that's the trick is to build advocacy somehow, find your way to build advocacy within the organization for a seemingly unpopular and actually or actually unpopular but necessary change in the organization. And when I got to Miami Beach, I was brought in with a mandate to put body cameras on cops. And I arrived in Miami Beach two months before Ferguson. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, right when, um, you know, the, the current changed perspective on law enforcement in American society, you know, began to change. Um, and I had fierce resistance from Miami Beach cops uh, to wearing body cameras. So we took the methodical approach. Lots of dialogue with the union around policy, rolling it out very, very slowly with the highest exposure cops first, who would most likely say, I'm glad I was wearing a body camera that day. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, and every agency has been through this now. Every enlightened large agency has body cameras now. Um, lots of challenges around implementation. But I guarantee you today, if you tried to take <clears throat> body cameras away from Aurora cops or Miami Beach cops, they would scream. Because right. they know the value yeah. and they've seen the value uh, of documenting their own actions from their own perspective. And plus, in addition, today, now everybody's got a camera and you take any action on the street, yeah. somebody's filming it anyway. Uh, but the, the professional, the, the resistance within the profession to the rollout of body cameras, uh, you know, beginning in, in American policing around 2012, 2013, 2014 was overwhelming. How can I do my mm -hmm. job, you know? And of course, you can, so, you know. Right. Well, so let's talk about, I mean, let's bring that up to the present day where there is so much, there's so much talk about police reform. Right. Um, what do you think are the key things that should be prioritized as we move that discussion forward? Well, what's really frustrating for police executives as we watch this is, and first of all, I'll give my, my speech that I've given every setting that I can. As a profession today, We've never been better educated, better trained, more diverse, 
okay? Better led, with better equipment, better tactics, and more experience based on things that have gone wrong over the years and how we've adapted and adjusted than we are today. And yet the narrative uh, in American society today is that we are out of control, okay? And we're a terrible profession and we're not improving. When in fact, my experience um, in 30 plus years as a police executive moving through the ranks and working in four iconic cities and then going to the police chiefs conferences, the two national conferences a year and the state conferences periodically is that it's a remarkable crew of American leaders in policing that are constantly trying to improve themselves. I wish for two things. I wish that folks who are hypercritical of the profession could attend some of those police chiefs conferences and sit in on those seminars as you have and mm -hmm. seen the earnestness which with, which, with which the top professionals in our business meet and try and discuss and solve problems. And the other thing I wish somehow people could see is what I've seen over the years and you've seen, I know from your career, is the time and time and time again where cops faced with opportunities on the street to make choices have chosen not to use force, have found a way to avoid um, uh, using deadly force and avoid injuring people who are in, or who are in crisis or out to hurt them. Um, uh, and of course, those <clears throat> heroic stories that go on every single day in American society. For instance, there is, there is a, a national discussion about whether or not the cops should respond to deal with issues involving homeless people who are acting in aberrant behavior that's disturbing to the community, okay? That it should be social workers. Well, cops are social workers. And I had an incredibly strong um, uh, homeless outreach unit in Miami Beach, a sergeant, four cops, and a, uh, a former uh, a civilian, former homeless guy with a criminal record and all of those things who had you know, sobered up and devoted his life to caring for the homeless and just an extraordinary human being um, who was capable of talking sometimes to people in a way that the cops could not. And that team, those six people, you know, the, the whole five years I was in Miami Beach, they were out there doing incredible rescues of, of homeless people in crisis. Um, and yeah, they were cops and yeah, they had guns because sometimes when you're out at two in the morning and you're going to places where you're getting complaints about, there's a certain percentage of folks who need to be arrested because they're, they're violating trespass laws, et cetera. They're, they're wanted sex offenders, et cetera. Um, uh, so it's, but we never heard any stories about bad things happening with the homeless population in Miami beach in their treatment by the police officers in the five years I was there because of this extraordinary team. So Dan, how how does how does that story that more complete story get communicated to the public at large? Because you know what I am concerned about is this narrative that's being pushed by uh, some people with an agenda um, could actually result in things that are that are not helpful in terms of retaining and recruiting talented people uh, that that bring you know good judgment to these situations. How how do we balance out? that that narrative it's a real challenge i i i don't have an easy solution there's there's efforts now to throw cops out of schools i mean i had i'll tell i'll tell two stories i had i had two cops working in high schools uh in ann arbor only two i had two sros one in each of the two major high schools with 
2,500 kids in there, okay? Um, they were among the most respected adults in the school. They weren't part of the administration, so they weren't handing out discipline, okay? They were a reassuring ear to any young adolescent who just wanted to talk to an adult, um, and they were beloved. I had a terrible tragedy occur in one of the high schools in Ann Arbor where two kids um, snuck out, you know, during, during class. They went and they were playing around in daddy's basement, and one of the kids, they found a shotgun, and by mistake, one kid killed the other with a shotgun. That kid ran back to the high school to tell the one adult in his life he trusted, which was the Ann Arbor police officer, what had occurred. Mm -hmm. okay? wow. um, in Aurora, I had 26 cops assigned to the schools. Big, big, big uh, city uh, uh, with, with, with a whole bunch of schools. And, you know, I preached that this, this is a community. You know, we have our neighborhoods, et cetera. Well, the, the two school districts are its own kind of special kind of community. And these are the community beat officers for those schools. And the principals and the administration and the, and the, and the students love those cops. And yeah, did they occasionally make arrests? Yeah, but you know, the safest place to make a mistake as a young man or woman is in the school, not outside the school, and the cops uh, were there for them. So um, this narrative that somehow cops shouldn't be in the schools uh, when they provide so much level of protection, and we also live in the world of, of violence and guns and active shooters and mass shootings, it's, you know, I, it's, um, it's something I struggle with. But as a chief, as an executive, as a leader of the organization that delivers this kind of service, um, the answer is I think you've got to tout the positives. You have to celebrate the successes, find a way. Um, it's easier and easier to find a way now with social media and all the different platforms. Right. And sophisticated police agencies are using social media to do that and just keep pushing the narrative that your people are doing good work. Um, and... The other thing you got to do as a police chief is you've got to work the community. You know, you've mm -hmm. got to be spending, you know, every three months a lunch with the head of the chamber of commerce, a lunch with the uh, superintendent of schools. Um, you know, you name the three or four biggest businesses. You've got to be spending time with them, spending time with each of the elected city council members and constantly basically cheerleading, informing about what the department's yeah. up to and cheerleading. And I said, Dan, is there... Is there an example you could share on that? Because I think that's so important, that investment in that personal relationship and connection that kind of that that basically builds trust so yeah. that, you know, someone is more inclined to give you the benefit of the doubt uh, or, um, you know, if, is there anything that comes? Yeah, I, in Aurora, Aurora, very big community, 350,000 residents, two major school districts. Um, one of the and, and one of them very, very challenged. Aurora was a big city on the uh, uh the eastern edge of, of Denver and sprawling for 165 square miles to the east and to the south, okay? Um, half of the city, um, a very challenged school district, probably the outside of the Denver school district, the most challenged uh, in terms of poverty, um, uh, second language issues, et cetera, uh, in all of Colorado uh, and under underperforming. Um, well, they recruited uh, a retired uh, a major general from the Air Force, a fighter pilot uh, named John Barry. Uh, uh, he was in that Broad Academy um, mm -hmm. training for, for, for folks to become school, school superintendents. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had learned over time that one of the most important relationships you have, because one of the most important communities you police is your, is your schools. Um, and so I worked the relationship with John and got to know him really, really well. 
Uh, there were all kinds of challenges on a regular basis because of the population he served and some of the decisions kids made and the trouble they got into. Well, we were we were talking, John and I were probably talking around policing issues and, you know, and, and service delivery to his schools at least four times a week. Mm. And then the Aurora Theater shooting happens. Mm -hmm. So it happens and and there's eleven hundred people in the theater. Uh, there's 300 something people in the theater where the shooting occurs, but the larger complex is 1100. And it's the first night of the, the Batman movie in 2012. The theater's full of students. It's full of kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. And they're John's kids. And they're, as you might imagine, horribly traumatized by what occurred. But that investment in building a relationship with a key community leader, uh, who's part of one of the most important, um, segments that we deliver services to that mm -hmm. personal relationship. And John and I were on the phone continuously or seeing each other in the days and weeks ahead about how to frankly cope as a community and deliver support services to his educational community in the aftermath of that event, because we had built that relationship of trust and mm -hmm. in policing. That's what you do as a police chief is you get out there in that community and you build trust and goodwill and you build it and you build it and you build it because you never know when you're going to have to cash it in. Uh, okay. Because let's face it, we are in the uh, we are in a tough business where there's always a bad outcome around the corner. Um, and we may have nothing to do with causing the bad outcome, but we're in the middle of it because we're the police okay. and we're expected to help the community arise out of that bad outcome and manage manage the damage as as as, as much as we can. Well, Dan, you you raised the um, that example around the, the Aurora theater shooting. Would you please share a little more about the background uh, of that, and then the unique the unique challenges that you you know that you had to address right. in managing that incident? All right. Well, the very short narrative is that it's uh, just after midnight on July twentieth, two thousand twelve. And the shooter goes into the crowded theater on the premiere of uh, Batman Returns, Dark Knight Rises or something like that was the name of the movie. Um, uh, and uh, he had planned this out and he opens fire in the theater. Um, he shoots 70 people, uh, kills 12, one of whom was carrying an unborn baby um, and uh, wounds 58. Uh, and uh, our response was superb. And we capture him outside the theater right after he's done shooting. Um, and the cops were extraordinarily um, responsive to the situation and well-trained and made the decision eight minutes in to transport uh, the most critically wounded to the, to the nearby hospitals. And they transported 27 who were critically wounded, uh, who the paramedics in the chaos couldn't get to, and all 27 of them lived. So one of the stories, one of the narratives that became part of American policing after 2012, which I am very proud of, is if you can't get the EMS folks to where the wounded are in a critical event like that, get the wounded out, you know, teach uh, tactical combat care, stop the bleeding care, and get in the hospitals as soon as possible. And American policing follows that model to this day based on the Aurora uh, um, example. So then it's all about the victims. Now, additionally, in our case, because we had a live defendant, it's also about convicting the defendant. And I could talk for hours about what that means in terms of running an investigation. But putting that aside, now you have, and we've seen this again and again and again since 2012, uh, now you have an entire community that's victimized. 
It isn't just the people in the theater, it's everyone they know and love. And effectively, it's the entire community. And then it's a lot of hard work. And um, in the early days, which is really, really intimidating, is all the focus is on the police chief because the police chief le leads the narrative of what occurred and what's going to occur prospectively for the first couple of days. It's just natural that that's how it, that, that's how it turns out. Um, that in itself was an extraordinary pressure. Um, but it's really about mobilizing all the resources of community to provide care. Uh, care to the to the families who have lost someone, care to the families of people who are wounded. Um, and, you know, and it's comprehensive care. It's, it's, it's all kinds of stuff you wouldn't think of. It's picking people up at the airport, if that's what it takes, because there's funerals. It's running, you know, the funerals. It's, it's getting uh, psychological help, somehow managing that for anybody who's victimized, including especially, you know, among, among the, the population that's victimized is your own cops. Right, um, right. and, uh, and all the city workers and, 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 um, if you have a high performing government, uh, which we did, Aurora is a great city and we had a high performing, uh, 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 city government, um, that, 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 that coalesces around key leaders in city government, including the police chief and, you know, everybody, everybody, all the major directors and the city manager. And if it's a high performing government, the elected officials realize the importance of that and support it. Uh, no matter the cost. Um, so, um, uh, you know, it was the transformative moment of my professional career, um, as, as you might imagine. But as I've preached since, no one really believes in the back of their mind that this is going to happen to me as a police chief and to my department. You know, the odds are not there. Of course, the odds are growing because we're having more and more of these. But back in 2012, Ours was at that time the largest mass shooting in terms of victims uh, in U.S. history. It's now been eclipsed by Pulse and by Las Vegas and by all these other events, unfortunately. Um, uh, and um, tremendously traumatizing. Um, and it takes forever to climb out of it. But, you know, um, in fact, I tell the story that um, about six months later, we were just, as a community, we're just climbing out of this and Newtown happened. You know, we, ours is July of 2012 and Newtown is December of 2012. And there was a collective crushing uh, depression in the Aurora community, watching another community go through what we had been through. Uh, um, so resiliency, we literally created the Aurora Resilience Center in the afterward for community members to seek uh, psychological help, you know, even, and I think it still operates to this day. Um, so, um, but there, there are a lot of challenges around that kind of tragedy. So. Is there anything, when you look back on it, I mean, not, not necessarily 2020 hindsight, just kind of thinking through what you knew at the time, are there any things that you would have done differently or handled differently? Um, I'm sure I could have spent more energy. Well, uh, on on my cops. I mean, I have a whole takeaways discussion about uh, lessons learned, um, mm -hmm. things we didn't expect, like mm -hmm. the efforts at, you know, defrauding people who are trying to give money to support the victims. I mean, I could go on with a list like that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, not realizing that cops are so traumatized that they can't write a decent police report of their observations. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, in the first 12 hours, you got to give them time. I mean, all kinds of little lessons like okay. that. Um, in terms of of big lessons, um, 
I think we did a real good job with the media. I think we, we did a real good job serving the victims. I'm not sure we spent enough energy as much as we tried. I'm not sure we spent enough energy on the trauma that our cops had been through. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we came to that realization, you know, weeks out. Uh, and we did a lot of really good things because we had a top shelf professional advising us. But we probably uh, could have done more. Um, I, you know, I, it, it may seem trivial now, but we neglected the local media to our detriment. You know, we paid attention to the national mm-hmm. media in the first couple of days. And I think there was some lingering resentment that before there was a gag order in place that we couldn't talk anymore, we didn't spend any significant time with local media. And then, you know, three days in, the district attorney got a gag order and we weren't allowed to talk about the case. Um, they, they all kinds of they, little mistakes like that. Um, right, right, right. Uh, but um, I think we were fairly well prepared for an agency that really doesn't believe it's going to happen to us, which is every agency in police. Right. Um, uh, but obviously more and more and better training is always good. Tactical combat care training, which is now I think mm-hmm. very, very common. We didn't spend any, any energy on that. My cops didn't have tourniquets issued to them in 2012. Now most enlightened police departments issue tourniquets to everyone and train them on them. So, I mean, there, there, there are hundreds of lessons. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let me shift gears a little bit because I mean, throughout our conversation, we keep coming back to connections with community with with key stakeholders and so on. I mean, we're now in a post-George Floyd uh, atmosphere. Um, what do you, I mean, I, and I know that you successfully built strong relationships with minority communities, certainly as Aurora Police Department. I, I don't know how that unfolded in Miami Beach. What, you know, in your experiences, what worked well and what do you think is particularly relevant to how we move forward today in a low trust, you know, environment? Well, on a personal level, what worked well in all three cities was seeking out, as soon as I arrived, the key leaders from the key interest groups that had the biggest issues with the police department and meeting them, spending time with them and establishing relationships with them. So on a personal level, that's really, really important for police chiefs to do. Um, And I, I managed somehow, even though I consider myself somewhat introverted, I managed somehow to to reach out to people, you know, typically from very, very different backgrounds than my own um, and, and spending the time. Um, I found, for instance, that when it came to some of uh, African-American ministers, it's really, really important to go to church. It's mm-hmm. really, really important to sit through those three hour Baptist uh, services. Um, and, and that's an investment. But, you know, every single time I went, I, I learned something. I had some moments of real laughs and joys and, uh, and I learned a lot about that community over time by doing that. You know, so, so that's an example. For some folks, it was about sharing meals. The Muslim community in um, Ann Arbor, a very significant Muslim community that frankly had been undervalued by the community as a whole and ignored by the police department before I arrived. Uh, important in that community was to spend time having a meal with folks uh, uh, and again, attending their services. Um, I was the first police chief to attend this, the local mosque for a service, you know, and that's precinct commander 101 in Brooklyn, which is where I was, my mm-hmm. last stop was before I left, but never entered the mind of a single police officer in Ann Arbor or executive to go to the mosque and attend services and address and address the, uh, the congregation. Um, so that kind of effort by the chief is really important. 
Then the other big thing, if you're having problems with the community, is finding way for cops to end up in settings with their critics, where they can be themselves and talk about what they do. Um, I've always found that if the setting is right and it's safe, that if a cop attends a meeting and meets with someone in the community and talks about what he or she does, who they are, where they came from, what their training is, and what they worry about and do every day, then their professionalism, their decency, and humanity will come through. So yeah. if you can set create settings where cops talk to people who are their critics about what they do and why, and by the way, simultaneously listen to the critics and why they're critics, um, that breaks down barriers, um, builds a certain level of trust and understanding that's really, really valuable. I mean, if you're, and I had a couple of these we, in Ann Arbor and Aurora, I actually staged formal facilitated sessions like this because I came into communities that were in crisis around their, their relationships with particularly the black community. You know, <clears throat> you're a cop and you hear a 17 year old uh, or 18 year old young lady talk about how she was stopped by the police and how terrified she was. You know, there's a good chance a whole lot of cops in America have never heard that directly from a 17 or 18 year old kid uh, and felt that passion uh, and, and come to an understanding of what might be in the, you know, the head of someone uh, in that circumstance. And that 18 year old hears what the cop, the cop's version of a car stop and what he worries about when he's approaching the car on a car stop and why he's concerned about traffic safety and speeding and all those kinds of things. Um, when that cop leaves that session, that stays in the back of his mind uh, for the rest of his career. That these are among the people that I stop and and uh, you know issue tickets to, and maybe there's room for and a need for a little bit more compassion, a little bit more patience, explaining what the car stop was about, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really powerful. And the young lady leaves the session feeling the decency and humanity of that police officer and beginning to change her perspective on all cops. So um, you know. There's work to be done as a police executive. There's work to be done to get your cops exposed. And then there's pitching or advocating to the people in between, making your sergeants, your lieutenants, and your senior commanders understand their role uh, in building relationships and advocating and creating goodwill for the department. Uh, Dan, how would you, I mean, knowing you came out of NYPD, and, which pioneered CompStat, kind of this data-driven approach, right. Um, you mentored me, you know, when I was a special agent in charge in Colorado, when I was thinking about how to add, adapt things that I thought might be helpful. What, how do you, what are indicators that give a chief a sense of the state of relationship with minority communities? I mean, are there, are there certain data points or key performance indicators that you could look at and go, okay, this is moving in the wrong direction, or this is moving in the right direction? Well, first off, if there's a crisis. It's how it's how your critics react to that crisis. I mean, that's clearly an indicator. You know, they do they give you a break? Do they give you a moment to explain? Um, I you know I preach uh, again that idea of building up goodwill. There is goodwill towards the police department in a community, including say among the biggest critics in the community. Then when something happens that's controversial, such as an officer-involved shooting. If you can pick up the phone and call key leaders and say, I need time, we're going to investigate this. Trust me, you're going to get an explanation, but I need time. If the goodwill is there, 
then those folks who might traditionally be critics will won't come out and blast you in the press right away and leap to conclusions. So mm-hmm. when there's a crisis, that's a good indicator. It's how do people respond in a crisis? Um, another good indicator is, you know, those folks are in the community. That means they're in the community. They're having regular and periodic contact with the police or if, say it's a minister or it's a school superintendent. Their constituents are having regular contact with the police. It's the signals you get in your contact with these folks and your dialogue with them. What they're, they're the little stories that they're telling you about their community's interrelation with the police and whether or not that's going well or not so well. Um, uh, and again, I you know I preached you take advantage of every opportunity to accrue goodwill. You know, mm-hmm. I mean the little things like we towed a car we shouldn't have towed. Okay. Someone's parked car we shouldn't have towed. Clearly, we made a mistake. All right. You know, what's the tow fee? The tow fee is $150. Okay. You check with the city managers. There's some way we can eat that tow fee out of our budget rather than charge these folks. You know, that kind of thing. There's all kinds of little gestures that you can do that that have outsized influence and in help what people think of the organization. You know, um, uh, 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 if there was a tra- another big thing is if there's a tragedy in a community is that you're sending a message you know some young child is killed as a result of a car accident that you're expressing the condolences of the police department you know quickly and sincerely to that to that community and you're showing up for the funeral and you're doing all those kinds of things those gestures count uh in terms of building goodwill and therefore building a level of communication you know i always preached you know and Everybody has their definition of community policing. If you go for a job interview as a police chief, they ask you, you know, chief, how do you feel about community policing? You know, typically the people asking the question don't know anything about community policing. Um, And I always expressed and I said, community policing is not a bike patrol program over a neighborhood watch program. Those are outcomes if the community demands that kind of thing. True community policing is, is cops are so immersed in an individual neighborhood or community that <clears throat> they're known and trusted and respected by the community, key leaders. They in turn know and trust the community key leaders. And they're at a relationship level where they're inviting each other to July 4th barbecues and children's christenings, mm-hmm. et cetera. If you have that kind of relationship with the community, okay, then problems that potentially the intercession of government and or the police and or other agencies of government could help solve early will emerge early. Mm -hmm. Once you have that relationship, you'll hear about the problem sooner where there's, where there's more opportunity for early intervention to fix the problem. And not only will the, will the, will the problem bubble up between the the cop and, and the, and the leader in the community, but good ideas about a solution to the problem bubble up as well. And when you have that going on, you know, the good ideas might be a bike patrol in an area. It might be a new neighborhood watch program. It might be something else. They'll naturally bubble up as solutions. But community policing is about that relationship. And so, so they, they're working at it all the time. So you've been uh, taking us on a tour on all right. these different nuances and facets of being a major city police chief. What, I mean, it, is, is there a particular course or institute or something that prepares people uh, to become a major city police chief? Or is it just kind of 
subject to the individual experiences of that person? You know, they, funny says, come? major cities chiefs, which is the organization for, I think the top, you know, 120 or so largest police agencies in the United States and major cities. Um, uh, they actually tried for a period of time, and I'm not going to know if they're still doing it. They tried a mentorship program for up and coming future police chiefs where you would travel, you know, uh, like one of my uh, commanders in Aurora spent a week with the chief in Houston, mm -hmm. you know, just shadowing the chief in Houston. So right. different agency, different state. So major city chiefs was doing that for a while. That is among the best things that you can do. Um, I don't know if that program still exists. There are training courses, obviously, Southern Police Institute, you know, FBI National Academy. There's, you know, there's programs like that. I think, frankly, that the best of them, which is a three-week course run by the Police Executive Research Forum, is the uh, uh, SMIP, Senior Management Institute for Policing. It's, it's mm -hmm. the program uh, that's run in the summers every year, and you send your senior leaders uh, for three weeks of intensive training with a class of about 60 people. And that's, and a lot of experienced executives come in and talk, et cetera. And I've talked at that a couple of times. That's really, really excellent, <clears throat> expensive, but really, really excellent. Um, so a big piece of it is chiefs have to be invested in mentoring up, up and coming leaders. And I think too late in my career, I realized that that was an important function, you know, of, of being a police chief was to be investing in bringing people along. And I think towards the end of my, my time as a police chief, I was doing that fairly well, spending a lot of time with uh, the most senior executives and the up and coming stars um, and sending them to every school that I could send them to. Um, By the way, who did that for you? You, met, you mentioned Commissioner Bradman <laughs> and others. Um, who did that for you? Well, the, the NYPD had its own internal program called the uh, Police Management Institute, and if you were tapped, you know, in the rank, I did, I went through it at the rank of captain, um, but uh, it's, and they sent 15 people a year to that, and you you formed a cohort, and now you had a network of folks as you move through this latter uh -huh. career. Uh, NYPD did that uh, very smartly. So, Dan, what are you doing currently? Well, I retired in 2019 in June, so just about two years ago, and um Interestingly enough, I've had consulting work uh, kind of come my way without me marketing myself or working very hard. Um, the two big projects I'm working on, one is I'm working with Bill Bratton. I'm teamed with Bill again. I'm part of a, a group that's counseling St. Louis County and St. Louis City around crime reduction with uh, Teneo Risk Advisory. And, you know, Bill is the uh, <clears throat> the head of that outfit. And, um, you know, I'm working with folks like Chuck Ramsey. Uh, Paul Evans. Uh, so it's a great team. And uh, it's a real privilege to be involved in that. And it's an interesting role to be a consultant to to two police agencies and trying to help them reduce crime. Then the other big project is um, uh, working for the Department of Justice. And I'm the team leader for training and technical uh, assistance grant uh, supporting Baltimore and Police Commissioner Mike Harrison and the city of Baltimore and its partners in their effort to reduce violent crime. So one's a private, privately funded effort, one's a government-funded effort, but it's uh, classic uh, law enforcement consulting. So it's been an adjustment, but I think on the whole it's fun. Um, I've had a couple of other little uh, efforts here and there where people have reached out to me for short-term projects. And then the other big thing is I'm um, working as an ice hockey referee. I've played ice hockey all my life, 
And uh, I always thought that I could referee well. <laughs> so I went and got certified. And I'm learning that being a referee on ice hockey is very, very challenging. But it's a challenge mm -hmm. I've accepted at this point in my life and having a lot of fun, mostly doing kids games, some adult games, uh, nothing too strenuous, uh, not doing high school or anything like that. And every game is a good skate. You know, it's really good exercise, and I absolutely love to ice skate. So we'll see how long that lasts. But I found uh, very humbling. Refereeing ice hockey is a lot harder than I thought it would be, even though I've played the game for over 40 years. So Wow. Well, Dan, I, I want to thank you again for spending uh, time with us, being so generous with your time today and sharing your experiences, and also just to thank you for your service uh, these many decades over, uh, you know, in, in a very difficult profession. So thank you for, for everything. We really appreciate it. And Kumar, thank you for your friendship over the years.